changemakers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many changemakers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Today, I'm excited to interview James Laddie Williams, MPA class of 2018, who, like me, goes by his middle name of Laddie. He is currently a research analyst in the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center at the Urban Institute. In his role, he researches urban development challenges in developing countries, including public service delivery, urban resilience, and resource mobilization. Before joining Urban, Laddie consulted for USAID on an assessment of the agency's urban policy. He also advised on monitoring and evaluation strategies for emerging public leaders, public service fellowships in Liberia and Ghana, which provides a pathway for young university graduates to enter the civil service at the federal level. In Freetown, Sierra Leone, Laddie supported education programs at Rising Academy Network, an organization that puts students learning first providing high-quality and affordable education. Laddie also was selected as a New York City Urban Fellow, where he served in the New York City Mayor's Office for Economic Opportunity. He holds a bachelor's degree in public administration from John Jay College of Criminal Justice and an MPA from Princeton. He is originally from Lagos, Nigeria, and in his spare time, he enjoys cooking, dancing to Afrobeats music, watching the English Premier League, playing FIFA, and reading about politics. Welcome to the show, Laddie. Thanks so much for having me, Rose. I'm really excited to chat today. Likewise, and I'm just excited to catch up with you in today's episode. So maybe we can start with sort of what you've been up to since graduating from Princeton. So when I graduated, uh, I had a chance to work on the Junior Summer Institute program at Princeton, which is basically a program that exposes young college juniors to what it's like you know, to go to policy school. Um, and that program really targets people from low income and minority backgrounds. I worked with my best friend, Martin uh, Desimone, supporting the juniors as they enjoyed their time on campus, organizing extracurricular activities for them. And that was a great experience that I, I'm really thankful for. And then after that, I moved on to Washington, D.C., I felt like DC was calling me in my entire second year at Princeton. I really wanted to make that transition to the world of international development. So the first gig I worked on was on an assessment of USAID's urban policy. With this assessment, I was helping out with research to understand the progress that's been made in implementing that policy. And then I worked as a consultant for emerging public leaders, which is a fast fascinating startup that's motivated by this idea that we need to get young folks in leadership positions and that there's a lot of impact that can be made through a career in in public service. And the motivation for that work also stems from the fact that for many young people in Africa, to get jobs that make sense in the public service, it's it's almost reserved for people from elite backgrounds who are very politically connected. So this program was trying to challenge that by providing some sort of merit-based pathway for young people who have the right skills and the enthusiasm to get into government with the hope that they would stay and grow and become leaders in their country. So it's, you can think of it as an equivalent of um, the, the United States Presidential Management Fellows. I think that's 
that's yeah. the, the pocket that that program um, fits in. And then I moved on to the Urban Institute where I currently work. I started out in a center on international development and governance at the Urban Institute and then transitioned into the Metropolitan Housing Policy Center. And now my bread and butter is really around this challenge of urban development, thinking through the challenges that urbanization poses to cities in developing countries. And I have just taken a break from work and I'm very excited to be talking to you. Yeah, it's great to be talking to you too. I was, I mean, maybe you answered my next question, which I was curious of all the projects you're working on at the Urban Institute, which are you most excited about? We are part of this effort that's trying to come up with a blueprint for federal place-based programs in the United States. You know, under the Obama administration, there were a number of programs that were launched in an attempt to tackle poverty. You know, we want to improve the physical and social conditions in specific places. So you're zooming into the city, you're zooming into the neighborhood, and then you're channeling funding into government and nonprofit institutions in ways that try to address the different factors that we now know help move people out of poverty. So looking at things like education, health, you know, the built environment and things of that nature. In the United States, and it's also true in other countries, right, that your zip code determines your destiny, right? So children's mm -hmm. life outcomes are really shaped by where they are born. And I, I'm really excited about this program because it's kind of pushing against that, of, that reality. And that idea really resonates with me as somebody who, you know, moved from Nigeria to the United States for, for education. In my role, we're doing a review of you know, those Obama-era programs and those that might have preceded it to see what we can learn from the past experiences of those programs and then begin to articulate a vision for what you know, a next-generation place-based program might look like. It's really exposing me to fascinating ideas like the role of government programs in making sure that resources are flexible for people at the community level to actually make change, right? Because communities kind of know their problems best, right? So oh, yeah. how does the federal government operate in a way that actually centers the power of residents and builds that power where it's lacking? Part of this work will also be about thinking critically about how evidence is informing programming strategies, thinking about how to use evidence in a way that bridges across the different policy domains, right? Because when you're thinking about something like poverty, you really can't pin it down to one factor right like it implicates health it implicates education you know economic development like it's it's a whole range of it's a system that's involved so what's the role of evidence in engaging more effectively across these different policy domains is something we're, we're looking out for there is this political moment in this country where there's been a change of government and everybody's excited about what might be possible within that you know on account of that change so this effort kind of leans into the change that's happening you know, in real time. And, and it's really, really fascinating for me to have the chance to be part of that process. And this idea of place being something that shapes our life outcomes, it's an idea that really travels well. So when I'm thinking about my own hopes for Nigeria and my own city of Lagos, this idea of place is something I'll be carrying under my toolkit for sure. Well, you just listed a bunch of policy areas as we were talking about the federal place-based programs. I'm curious, are there other policy issues today that you consider sort of the most pressing, obviously aside from COVID-19? 
man, the most pressing. This, this is a million dollar question. I it is. Like, I think one issue that I'm very concerned about that I think cuts across policy domains is what I want to call a, a crisis of leadership, actually. We're seeing leaders divide more than they unite. We're seeing leaders lacking in the compassion and empathy and kindness that we need leaders to show. We're, we're seeing leaders failing to bring that, that moral character and resolve to really like, you know, confront the global problems that are facing us. And it's almost as if, you know, leaders aren't articulating a vision for, you know, the kind of society that we want to live in and, and build. If you want to look at how that plays out in some policy domains, one that comes to the top of my mind, I think, is climate change. Oh, yeah. In, I mean, with the problem of climate change, it's not like it's a challenge that lives in some distant future, right? No, like people are already suffering from the impacts of climate change, whether, it, you know, in terms of what's happening to agricultural output, who's being displaced by floods and things right. like that. And yet in the face of challenges this big, you know, we haven't really seen leaders, you know, show that resolve to do the needful to, you know, address it. Last year, there was this con and I'm not a climate change expert by any means. So I'm sure there are more technical experts that, you know, can weigh into the nuances, but there was this big conference that happened last year, the, the COP25, pretty much world leaders came and they were supposed to negotiate on a certain threshold to which to limit global warming. I think it was 1.5 degrees or so. And yet they couldn't reach a deal, even though the evidence of climate impact is in front of us and, and here for all to see and feel. And then the other issue that I, I think I must lift up in terms of policy is, is that of poverty. And for me, poverty is, is more than about, you know, people not having income and assets. You know, it's really about people not having political voice in their communities, you know, a sense of powerlessness that really holds people back. In my view, I think, I think poverty is a form of violence that persists, you know, globally. When you think of the path, you know, to escape from poverty, right, we often think of education as being that way out in terms of driving people up, you know, the social ladder. But I worry that education may not be playing that role anymore, at least in the Nigerian context, where public education systems are, you know, severely lacking in terms of quality of instruction. Um, you have universities going on strikes endlessly. So what should be a four-year degree could take eight. Where does how does education play that role um, of, of being a, a driver of upward mobility when the public education system isn't functioning as it should? No, I mean, it goes back to the the zip code issue that you were talking about where, I mean, if you're in a zip code where the education is poor, I mean, that that's one barrier already in terms of advancing. And um, I think it's a really good point. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious what motivates you in this work. Um, you know, you've had an interesting career so far and coursework and um, also just being from Nigeria. I'm just curious when you think back across your life, is there a moment that kind of stands out to you as being particularly transformative that has led you in the direction that you've taken? There was something about growing up in Lagos that made it clear to me that this life that we're living isn't what it should be and government is to blame for it. I know that's a very simplistic way to think about things, but I guess what I'm trying to say is the, the breakdown or the, the shortcomings of government to deliver basic services was just so, so apparent to me. Just developing that sensibility early on um, is what really pushed me to want 
a career in in public service for some reason i just loved the subject government and i had this one teacher uh his name is mr ogbadu he was like an intellectual figure to me even though he was teaching us about institutions the three tiers of government very government very basic government stuff in a sense we could feel him express his frustration with the nigerian condition so i think this was somebody that that i admired since then i've been cultivating that ambition of wanting to be in that space recognizing that the decisions that governments make or fail to make have real consequences on real people that can be devastating right so i've been pursuing this public service idea for a long time so what i told the guy at the the guy who interviewed me for my visa when i was living in nigeria in 2011 he was like okay what what do you want to do when you get to america i was like I'm going to learn about government. They seem to have figured things out there. I know that's a controversial <laughs> statement in the current context. They seem to have figured things out there, but I'm going to t- you know, learn everything about government in the United States and then ship myself back to Abuja and do the work that needs to be done. You know, I want to go back to something you said earlier about this sort of leadership crisis. You know, we have been living in some very fraught times in which so many people seem unwilling to strike a compromise on so many levels. And I'm curious in your life, what has worked in terms of forging a consensus whether it's in your job in the classroom among your peers what what are some of your best tips for that what helps and this might sound very abstract but i think the first is really understanding your own goals you know going into the situation whether you want to call it a negotiation like what are your own goals what's your team's goals like having that locked down you know and from there i think you want to understand what you can really give up and how that affects the goal that you're ultimately solving for right um so i guess begin with knowledge of yourself and needs you know and then i think you want to be intentional about who else is in the room right and getting a sense of the power dynamics there too i would say don't make assumptions you know ask questions try to understand the motivation of you know the other person or the other people in the room try to earn trust and credibility early on and then i would say think about the element of time right so is this conversation a a one off thing or are we actually in a repeated game where it's like okay i may make a concession today with the expectation that tomorrow it's the other it's the, it's the folks on the other end of the table that will be making some concession um knowing myself my team's needs understanding what i can give up and how that affects my ultimate bottom line you know being intentional about understanding who else is in the room building trust and then not losing perspective of of time we'll see if that helps when i don't know i become a governor someday or <laughs> i think that's great those are like perfect bullet points i could just write down and put on my wall um just you know turning to princeton a little bit i'm curious in what ways you think the school has prepared you because you did say you're early on in your career I'm curious just what are some of the lessons and skills you learned at Princeton that you are going to employ today and in the future. I really 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 need to put it on the public record that I am extremely grateful uh for the chance uh to have gone to Princeton for my MPA. I say those two years are the best two years of my life. I came into contact with Princeton in what felt like a critical moment in my life. in my personal statement i said look i'm on a mission in this united states and you know if 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 i don't get this mpa you know from princeton it's like it's like everything i've done is for not 
And I really meant it. I felt like a lot was at stake for me at the time I was applying. It's a long way of saying, I am so grateful for the chance to have gone there. And to bring this to the conversation that, to the question you asked, the chance to have gone there really paved the way for the career that I have now and want to build. Going there let me orient myself to the world of international development, you know, understanding the global debates, um, understanding the key institutions, the roles they've played, and then getting into the the tactical um, toolkits that any policy person needs. So yes, um, I give credit to the school for helping me make that you know reorientation to questions of development. In terms of lessons learned, one that I definitely learned from the school and still use today deals with information. How do you take a large body of information and distill it to its very essence and you know communicate what's needed to your principal? I think that's a very valuable skill. The program really equipped me to you know, focus on understanding the argument that's being made, assessing the quality of evidence that's, that's being brought to bear, um, and also communicating things uh, very clearly. So that effective writing, I think it's, 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 it's a, perhaps the biggest of the skills that I got from the school that I, I still use. And then there's the quant stuff. I wouldn't have survived my first two consultancies you know, if I didn't know how to use Stata. But in terms of preparing for my career, I would say the community um, the community of my classmates and with the alumni as well. I don't feel like I'm alone in this journey of trying to have an impactful career. You know, I have friends who are leaders in their own respects. You know, I continue to draw inspiration from them. You know, there is not a single op-ed that I write that isn't filtered through the lens of my classmates. They kind of pour into, into me and I hope that I pour into them as well. So that's that's been very important. I mean, I can tell from our conversation too that, you know, we've talked a lot about leadership and I have a feeling that you're going to be going on to some big things in your life in that way. Do you feel like the school trained you to be a leader? So I wouldn't say trained. My own position is... It's, it's hard to, to train a leader, right? I'm sure there's a rich literature on whether leadership is something that's nature versus nurture, but yes, that, that's besides the point. So I wouldn't say it trained, but I would say without any reservation that Princeton really nurtured my ambition for leadership in a way that's so empowering. I can't count the number of times that a professor is lecturing and you know, he or she is saying, so you're a senior policymaker in country X, you know, and your job is to advise your principal on, you know, this task, this question, here's how to think about it. So I was always daydreaming in, in class about when I would have the chance to, you know, step into those shoes. That environment was just so nurturing for that idea that we're, we're giving you these tools because we believe you can make some difference in the world and the time is going to come and you're going to go out there. I think I can defend my claim that it really nurtures that ambition. So it's not just hype or warm fuzzy feeling stories. But what justifies that for me is the example of my classmates. My classmates are taking on roles in government. You know, they are walking that leadership talk. They are, you know, organizing in communities. They are providing thought leadership through their writing. So it's not just... It's not empty language for me to say that it nurtures the ambition. It really does. Like, so I still think and believe that, you know, a time is going to come when I'm not imagining that I'm a senior policymaker in my country, that I, I, I am the principal, right? Um, yeah. Um, and that is just so empowering. The other thing I will add 
that is unique about this place. Again, it's not training me to be a leader, but it's consistent with nurturing the ambition of leadership is that it gave me and my classmates a rare chance to have intimate conversations with leaders, right? Public sector, private sector leaders. Like there were a number of heads of states that came to talk to us in ways that we were free to ask them questions about that experience of leadership. You know, we didn't always agree with their their analysis of positions. Like we're, we're very critical, but still just having that opportunity to sit down and, you know, have meals with people who have attained high public office. I think there's significant learning that you get from there that you don't really get when you read a textbook. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And listening to you talk about the leadership through mentorship guests makes me really miss being on campus and seeing some amazing public talks because we've been remote for so long. So I look forward to getting back to that. Well, as we wrap up our conversation here, I, we, I like to end it with some advice for people who are maybe entering the workforce for the first time or maybe switching careers or jobs. What would you say to those people in the times of today? In the times of today, the first <laughs> thing I want to do is empathize with everyone that's looking for work um, in the current times. Um, it's, it's incredibly challenging. I'm just sending good thoughts your way and I hope that you know you land a role that is a good fit for you and a role that lets you work on your dreams. I didn't have the most straightforward transition from grad school to work. And I know how a difficult job search can really hurt, or not, not just financially, but like it can hurt your sense of self, your self-esteem and, and your, your motivation and everything. So I just want to send some love and light out there. One thing I would say is go in with a a fierce commitment to learning. Never lose that interest in learning. Learning doesn't end in the classroom. The second thing I would say is writing is a super important skill. And I would encourage folks to like really pay careful attention to it. It's important to put your voice out there. It's important to you know, communicate clearly and not neglect writing. I think writing is a tool to change the world, right? Right. By the power of evidence and argument, right? So I think I would encourage folks to be intentional about developing their writing skills. Even if you think you're a good writer, even if your colleagues tell you, oh, you write really well. No, don't take that. Like Mm -hmm. if you're young and you're out there, try to lean into your strengths and what you enjoy. Reflecting on my own experience, there's a tendency to focus a lot of my energy on things I don't feel like I'm good at or skill sets where maybe I feel a little insecure, right? So I'll pour all my energy into those skill areas. But I realized that in doing that, I'm actually neglecting the things that I actually love doing and things that I I am good at, right? And that's not good because it's like a net loss, right? You know, yes, be yourself and um, just try to be intentional about spreading good vibes and, you know, be enthusiastic um, because, it is so important. Um, I think it, it, en- it enriches team dynamics when you're on the call with another person that's bringing a lot of energy to bear. You know, and these days when all we have is just us and our screens and Zoom, it's really important for us to be you know, putting good energy out there. And then finally, I would say, don't forget why you're doing what you're doing, right? Take moments to pause to make sure that you know, what you're doing is somehow in service of your dreams, 
right? Like don't kick out your dreams just because of work, right? So why are you doing it? What do you want to do? You know, what kind of change, you know, do you want to see in the world? You know, if, if you're someone like me who thinks a better world is possible, like always have that um, front and center. That's all really great advice. And I have to say, as a writer, I really appreciate what you said about good writing. It, it's a skill you can use in so many jobs and so many workplaces. And it's benefited my life greatly. So I'm glad that it's benefited yours as well. We're just about out of time. Is there anything you want to add before we close up today, Laddie? Yes, yes. There's one story I wanted to tell you. And again, this was made possible through the generosity of Princeton. So in the summer of 2017, I got to consult with Rising Academies. That time in Freetown was a very important moment for me because it was the first time that I would actually see another African country. So Rising had this scholarship program where you know they would give tuition discounts so that children from poor backgrounds would be able to attend their school. And my task was to do you know, come up with a profile of those kids that had received scholarships. So I did interviews with a bunch of them. Very fascinating. These guys are what, maybe nine, 10 years old. At such a young age, they were already aware of things in society that wasn't really working. And that was already shaping their own career ambitions. But the point for me was just to see those development challenges being so vivid in, in the eyes of kids. You know, it is one thing to read about a policy problem in some given context, but it's another thing to actually, you know, be there, living the challenge on a day-to-day basis, right? Understanding the entire system, right? Having some cost to pay when things go wrong, right? I mean, if you're sitting in Washington and writing a memo, if things go wrong, that's probably just another paragraph in your memo, right? But like, yeah, when you're there, it's, it's different. And I think there's a lot of insight that comes with living and breathing a challenge, as well as the opportunities that might be there, right? You get to see the way, you know, people drive systems. Like I know at Rising, they were always in conversation with the, you know, Ministry of Education and and such. So you get to see the way people drive systems and, you know, why change might be hard to, to achieve and some opportunities that may pop up. So personally, that's something that I need to solve for this idea of skin in the game and what it means for being able to make an impact. This has been a fantastic conversation. I know I'm ending it here feeling very inspired personally. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today on Changemakers. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm great. Again, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to, to have had this conversation. Um, thank you for giving me a chance to reflect and dream again (laughs) of course (laughs) you've been listening to changemakers a podcast produced by the princeton school of public and international affairs this show is hosted produced and edited by me rose huber listen and subscribe to the show on itunes spotify and wherever else you find podcasts thanks for tuning in and see you next time